Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the second season of the Inspired Podcast, brought to you by American Indian Graduate Center. Um, I am, your, again, your host this season, Dr. Corey Steele. I am so excited to be back. I am so excited to be going on this journey with all of you all again. Um, but this year, we have a new platform that will be able to join us. So if you're joining us on YouTube or Instagram, as you did last year, this year, we are also um, providing this podcast via Spotify. So make sure that you go and share and you listen and um, just gain this, this knowledge that we're learning through this season. You know, this season two, we have, uh, I, I'm just, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. We have a great number of speakers, of community members, of educators, of scholars, of students um, that are going to be sharing their knowledge, sharing their stories uh, about all different types of topics. And so this, uh, this season, we want you to really just come on this journey with us. Um, and today is no different. You know, today we have a great episode planned to kick off the second season. And we just hope you enjoy and we look forward to, again, just sharing space with you as we go through the next couple of weeks. So for the first episode of season two, we are honored to be joined by Cecilia Rose Lapointe. Cecilia is Ojibwe Mintis, who is Mashkazibi Bad River Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, Chihuahuadong Kowihna Bay Indian Community from Michigan. She's also the founder and owner of both Red Circle Consulting, Wab Ajijek Press, and Native Justice Coalition, as well as an accomplished poet, writer, um, she's been published in anthologies, booklets, chapbooks, dissertations, journals, magazines, and online Indigenous Native publications. Um, Cecilia has a Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and a Master's of Arts in Environmental Leadership from Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. So it is an honor to have Cecilia with us here as we kick off season two, as we're getting ready to go into um, another great series of Indigenous speakers and Indigenous thoughts. So we just want to say welcome to the show, Cecilia. Thanks for having me. So as we as we just kind of kick off this, this season's conversations, um, would you be willing just to tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background? I know we just gave like a very high level background introduction, but we know as Native people, we really love to uh, talk about our communities and where we come from. So we just want to provide that space to you as we share story today. Sure, I'll do my formal introduction in Anishinaabe Moen, which is the Anishinaabe language. Buju, Nigigans, Bapi, Indigenakaz, Ajinjak for them, Chuikwadong, Minawa, Mashkizi, B, Indojaba, Namanetaganandao. I said, my name is the Laughing Otter. I'm Queen Clan. I come from the Kiwanabe Indian community and the Bad River Band of Lake Superior Ojibwe, also known as the Point Band. And I live in the land beneath the trees. Um, which is Manistee, Michigan. Um, and so talking a little bit about, I guess what's coming up for me is my upbringing and the importance of um, growing up, you know, in a beautiful uh, multiracial family. We're Ojibwe, Métis, we do have Sami heritage. Uh, we're researching it currently, indigenous Sami heritage and um, black, white, and we're beautifully multiracial. So I've always known love and in this world, um, just being accepted for who I am. But I've dealt, as many Indigenous people, unfortunately, a lot of racism. And 
with uh, more discussions happening on generational trauma and generational trauma. Um, I've done a lot of work personally. And so I believe as a leader, it is important to do that inner work before you do the work in the community. But remember, you're always doing the inner work if you're doing this work. So, you know, one of my relatives in my community, he shares his recovery story. And he said, you know, I was having trouble with the higher power part. And I think sometimes as, as an indigenous people, we do because of colonization and Christ, Christianization. So he's, he basically said what we already know and what our beliefs are is that the higher power is the community. It is everyone. It is Sayurata Pawa, it's the drum, it's the singers, it's the women singing, the children dancing. It's everyone there putting the prayers in the form of dance and celebration in community and family. And so that's how I believe with the coalition is really that we are in a sense, very traditional when it comes to what we believe and how we work for the community. So in a sense, tying that back to my upbringing and my family, it was how I was raised. Uh, surviving racism in the workplace, surviving racism in your community. You know, it's unfortunate everywhere we go as indigenous people that we're gonna deal with racism, whether it's in the suburbs, the city. Um, you know, I've lived in the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians community in Manistee, Michigan on the reservation for 10 years. I've dealt with a lot of racism here. I've actually had, and surprisingly, two conservative allies who said, no, don't move because of racism. And that's exactly what you're supposed to say. That's as simple as it is. Don't move because you're not welcome, you're not wanted, stay because you're indigenous and you have a right to live where you wanna live. Whether it is an upper class suburb or middle class suburb or where I live, which is more of a working class community. Um, and so the strength of my foundation, my family, the hard work, um, the love, and even my neighborhood growing up, I will just reflect on that in the last part of this question is I grew up in a very liberal community where I had my, my blood parents. I had what I call my hippie parents down the street. And I also had my Jewish parents. And a lot of people looked out for us. Um, you know, I saw drag queens as a young kid walking down the street. There was a gay bookstore two blocks from my house. My sister and I joked recently, we'd be like, mom, what is this store? <laughs> and she'd be like, oh, it's just a gay bookstore. So we had a really liberal upbringing, very fortunate because how I identify as a two-spirit, not everybody has had that. And they grew up in very conservative communities, very conservative families that weren't accepting. Um, so it's paved the way for the work that we're doing and the difficult things I've experienced, but I always remember that love and that love from the community will get you through um, the unfortunate things we're gonna face as indigenous people. So thank you so much for that introduction, Cecilia. And I, I think, you know, as you were talking about the, when you, when you said the statement of you, you can't leave just because someone doesn't want you there, I think that reverberates across the board in native communities. Um, especially with our histories and and the way Native peoples have been viewed and treated over the last two, three hundred years. That's a strong statement that we can't be moved, that our communities are made up of multiple identities and the intersectionalities of those identities is what really 
creates those strong community roots and those strong community values. And so I appreciate you talking about, you know, uh, as, as you were sitting there talking about, and you, you had your different sets of parents, I was going through and remembering all the different, all the different parent figures and all the different community members that I had in my life that was like, yeah, you know, that's so true. We, I, we had this, we had that, we had these, you know, we had multiple, mm-hmm. um, we knew our, our native identity was our core, but we had multiple influences on us wherever we were that was that that's truly that intersectionality of identity so I really do appreciate um, you talking on that um, so that kind of really leads me into my next question you know your life work has been guided by a strong foundation um, from your ancestors and your belief in indigenous survivance and resistance from a specifically a two-spirit ma- uh, matrilineal view um, so could you share how these teachings guide you and how others may be able to use them as a guide in our own daily lives? Yeah, um, again, I feel very fortunate. You know, on my mother's side, we have um, someone who's assisted, my great-grandfather assisted in the building and the founding of the UAW. It was actually called the UAWA. And while we know there's corruption and it can happen in many things, the beginning of unions really pay for people. So I do come from a, a strong union, uh, auto industry and telephone worker. And on my father's side, I always say that indigenous resistance, that survivance is also so important to honor because you can look at the ways that, you know, our ancestors had to hide to survive, hide their identities to, to survive. Um, and so being basically, proud of who you are is so important because it's not even really that accepted in the majority culture. Um, I can say there's problems on both sides, the city and um, living basically in a native community on the reservation. You know, in the city, you deal with erasure. I know it's different across U.S. and Canada, but I think with the dynamic in the Midwest and Michigan, we get erased and absorbed in the city. For some, the experience might be different, but I personally have some trauma from growing up in the metro area, um, particularly when I was at, at Wayne State University in Detroit. There was no native student group and I felt erased. I felt ignored. I felt invisible. I didn't have that cultural connection. That's when I felt the most point in my life when I didn't have um, my culture. But in northern Michigan, I feel like I'm visible. I have my culture. I have the land. I have the water. And I have the relations that may not be human relations that sustain my life and well-being. Um, things have gotten a lot better in Keweenaw Bay, you know, but we're still one of the poorer tribes in Michigan. So I look at all the resistance on all sides of heritage. You know, I think it's important. Many of us are multiracial like myself, and this is who I am. And I'm, I'm proud to be who I am. Um, I love my family. I, I love my relatives. And I love my community. Um, so sustaining that comes through, for instance, my great-grandmother times five was Madeline Kadat. And in our territory, uh, we have an island called Muning Wakening. Um, and it is Madeline Island, Wisconsin. It translates to the place of the golden-breasted woodpecker, and it's considered the origin of Ojibwe people. And so Ojibwe were one of the largest tribes in US and Canada. Um, I think we're number four. Um, so Anishinaabe Nation includes Ojibwe, Odawa, Potawatomi, um, Mississauga, Salto, and we have the Métis within our territory. It's a unique identity to the Great Lakes. So we're one of the largest nations. 
And I think about the fur trade and colonization, but that ancestor, she held it down. She was a businesswoman long before the dawn of colonial feminism came to this land. Basically, she dealt with the fur traders and she would go from Madeline Island to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan and travel. Her name was actually a Quaisaway. And I feel like with my work, I, I have to travel. That is part of the work I do. It's actually a part of the clan relation being Crane Clan, where speakers, orators, where we negotiate with other bands. It's not even, it's kind of a nation to relationship to in a colonial sense. Um, but I think of her, I think of my grandfather who didn't really have a voice. And though he, he had a great love for his grandchildren, he couldn't really articulate the things he had endured. And, um, you know, I do hone in on the ancestors um, all the time. In fact, it's something that was given to me as a child with my parents on all sides. You know, my parents, um, like a lot of Native families, they do embrace like the, the Catholic religion. But, um, you know, it's sometimes you have to look at it. That's what they need. And it's kind of like, I see it as harm reduction, <laughs> even though we want to just say that's you've done so much damage Catholic church and, you know, you have to, you know, at least start working on this and this healing with our communities with uh, information coming out about what has happened at those schools, so-called schools or not schools, they were ethnic cleansing camps. And, um, but back to where we weren't just in that, we had an open mind to other religions, faiths, spirituality, and ways of life. So the ancestors were always with us is what I was raised with. And um, honestly, it's, it's really helped with my foundation and the view. For example, I'll talk again about enduring racism in the workplace. And there was before I filed my charge of discrimination at one of the places with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, I couldn't take it anymore. I felt they were bearing down on me more. Um, I, I just couldn't really continue forward. And I did feel one of the ancestors there, you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm basically with you in this, in this hellish situation. That's what it, what it was. And, um, you know, what is our choice in oppression, but to continue to go forward? Because it's like, we have different realities of how we live and how majority lives. And that's where the racism comes in. Basically, it's just owning that, owning my identity. You know, it's everything that that is not really accepted. And so what would be some advice that you would give? Because you, you talked about, you know, owning your identity and you call calling things out. You know, I I, I loved how you know you called you called residential boarding schools what they were. Like they weren't schools. These were institutions of cultural genocide. That's, that's what it was. Um, what advice would you have for people who are still coming into that identity and are, are wanting to um, really express and own their own identity, but are still trying to find their voice and are still trying to find, you know, their, that balance in their daily lives of owning that identity and calling these institutional and um, we'll talk about historical trauma and intergenerational trauma here in a second, but really those traumas that we carry with us um, from, those, from those institutions and those systematic, um, sy those systematic oppressions and those systematic traumas that we, we witness every day. 
what advice would you have for for those people to be able to own their identity and help them call out if they're still not comfortable doing that? Yeah, I think there's a process, you know, um, I think it takes a, it's kind of a, you have to look, do that inner work within yourself. And it's unfortunate because I was talking to my friend recently, it's like victims always have to do more work than the perpetrator, always. Like if you're a survivor, for example, of sexual assault, you're the one who has to file the paperwork. You're the one who has to talk to law enforcement. You're the one that has to do the healing. For injustice and the justice system has an imbalance. Um, so there's a, and I'm relating that to just as an example of identity and how we're constantly bared down upon as indigenous people, constantly erased, you know, and that erasure is the modern form of racism towards us, you know. And we are representative of so many different identities, you know, um, due to colonization, due to the mixing that has occurred. So we may represent from <laughs> one very light to very dark and everything in between. We may have, you know, it just, the identities are, it, it really is about just honoring being indigenous. And so some people may go, well, I don't feel comfortable because it's not how I was raised. Listen, I was raised in the suburbs. And you might hear, you hear that from some folks. And it's like, that doesn't discredit your native identity, nor does it discredit it if you've had been away from the culture because the culture has been taken from you. So it's about reclaiming one step at a time and finding your voice. Because sometimes people say, well, use your voice. But it's kind of complicated for indigenous people. It's not a matter of just, getting out there because you're, you might not be accepted in your community. You know, um, I can speak to the community I've lived in 10 years. I don't think it's a, com a community moving forward very fast on being more inclusive to the native community. I would say it's one of the more difficult communities to work with in Michigan because of majority culture racism here. There is a lot, and we know this across our, our native communities in the US and Canada. Some are more progressive. Some are, and some can't because it's not their fault. It's the fault of the trauma from these, um, you know, what occurred with the ethnic cleansing camps with basically trying to continue genocide and really with issues like MMIW, G2S with, you know, the police violence, it is still occurring. So what we're doing every day is so important. Everything you do, it feels like it's not as an individual. You go, well, I'm on my own. I'm the only native person for miles in this big metropolitan area. And, or I'm the only one in this rural county and it's a really, really not diverse here. Um, or sometimes it can be very diverse and you're still not accepted, which is something too we need to discuss because there's a lot of focus on racial justice, but it's only really been recent where we're being more included as indigenous people. Um, I feel like those are some honest conversations we need to have, um, you know? And so really it's about claiming the space. And sometimes with the trauma, it can be uncomfortable. You know, I, I've certainly had, due to racism in the workplace, post-traumatic stress, and sometimes even in this community, I'd go out and be like, I can't be in public because I'm gonna deal with racism. And it's 
kind of true. You're going to go out in public as an Indigenous person in this particular community they live in, and you're going to be, it's not accepted to, to be who you are. So that's why I think taking care of yourself the best you can, and then honing in on the ways you can grow and learn and the ways you can strengthen your voice. It's, it's a process and give yourself time, be patient because you know there's gonna be stumbling blocks, but it's not your fault. It's not your fault if you mess up. It's actually, we really need to blame the systems at place for not making space for us. You know, Think about all the places that could be a lot more inclusive. So that is my advice. Thank you so much. And that is, and that truly is wonderful advice. You know, we, we have these conversations specifically a lot with Native students about finding your voice in institutions, because I think that's, that's one area where we also see a lot of that erasure. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. I, I appreciate those words. Um, so as we kind of shift over to your, your writing, you know, your writing addresses a variety of topics with a lot of its centering themes um, on healing justice, particularly around historical and inter intergenerational trauma. Um, could you kind of talk about why this topic inspires you? Yes. Um, well, first I wanna just, you know, say to regrets to my mom for when I was eight years old, she said to write no matter what it was, whether it was dark or light. And that was a, one, of the, one of the awesome things that she did was to create that space and to say, you know, whatever you're feeling, you can write about. There's no judgment. And so all the different things I've endured in life, you know, all the, the ways I've gone forward and committed to my healing and my family's healing and my community's healing, um, <clears throat> I basically, you know, was able to spend time uh, using poetry as the main place to process generational, historical, and current traumas because I believe that a lot of the systems in place like mental health care, it's not necessarily inclusive of, uh, of us. Um, I've dealt with racism in mental health care. You know, I, I went actually to one council one time and they asked me, when did you decide to become Native American? I said, I was born this way and there's no decision. Um, actually, the, we're coming around and they're willing to do reconciliation and I hope that includes some donations to our coalition. Um, <laughs> but it's really those kind of things that it's not supportive out there. So I think naturally I feel more comfortable processing that with poetry, being on the land in the water. The land is always the best concert for me. Um, and so the poetry, it just, there was a time I would say my mid twenties where it just really started flowing. And I could, it was like, I couldn't, the ideas, they would like download, I had to write them, download, I had to write them. Then as an artist, you'll be fine. You know, whether you're a photographer, you're doing, working with metals, you're working with pottery, you're always refining. So my poetry, you know, it's a place for me to, to share about that. And it is, some of it's very personal. And I do talk about my family and I talk about the things we endured but we have to remember that a lot of that is the result of colonization, is the result of being survivors of genocide. We have to remember that the core of who we are um, in our culture, in Anishinaabe culture, is that Zagetawin. Zagetawin is love. So love 
has gotten us through a lot of these difficult situations where it's not really who we are, you know, harming each other or, you know, the things we've endured that are not in alignment with our cultural values. It's what we've done to survive under, you know, the very difficult uh, things we've endured and still endure. You know, you're right. You asked in the beginning about, you know, the things we hear on a day-to-day -day basis, um, police violence, you know, I, and I, as, as a leader, um, I tune into what's going on with a lot of our remote communities in the Anishinaabe Nation. So a lot of our communities way up in Ontario, um, hear about the water crises, hear about the suicides and kids having to leave home because there's no high school. They have to go to Thunder Bay, Ontario and Thunder Bay has a lot of racism. And I, I think about that and that stirs up trauma for me. And then I go, I'll just keep going forward for the community. I'm you know, doing what we can do as a young organization, continuing to grow. But I, you know, and that comes out in my poetry as well. Um, I have a poem from Eagle Rock to Standing Rock and Eagle Rock was a, uh, it is a sacred site Megizi uh, Wasin, so that translates to Eagle Rock and Anishinaabe Moen. And we fought that battle for 11 years and lost. So basically, a multinational mining company, Rio Tinto, is mining below our sacred site in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And it's really that in this, I wrote this poem to show my love for the community and for my family and the relations and our fight. And these ongoing fights, look at right now with line three in Minnesota and Anishinaabe Nation. Um, we're all, unfortunately, these fights aren't gonna go away because of the view, the different, the views of destruction, the views of the land is for consumption, the land is for getting these resources. And that's resource colonization, but it also affects our, what you know, we've been fighting for forever, basically. So from Eagle Rock to Standing Rock, it is the growth. It, it seems to me that more people are taking action. And that's again, coming to the voice. The youth are like, I wanna go to line three. And I'm like, just be careful, you know, because they're looking to arrest you and they're looking to do strip searches and they're looking to harm you. So think about that before you go, you know, um, because some of us like myself, I, I think it's just important to relay that as someone who's almost 40, that I've been there, I've seen them laugh at us with their cameras and they don't care. They don't care about indigenous communities. Um, poetry, I guess I'll also say this is um, a way to kind of dig, dig into the past in a good way too. Um, I, I believe there's a lot of things that we don't know that are kind of, you know, it seems like a lot of things are being unearthed right now. And um, a lot of, we even had, and I, I'm not meaning that in an insulting way, but I'm saying good things as well um, and not insulting to the boarding school survivors, but there's things we don't know, like around two-spirit identity, around say, you know, our societies that we may have had, um, grandmother's councils in the Anishinaabe nation, that there's, there's a lot that we don't know. There's maybe some words in the language we don't know. So I find through poetry that it helps me. Um, one other poem I recently wrote, 
uh, sobriety creates beauty is because it really does. And <laughs> there's an elder in this community I've lived in um, who says, you know, every day will get better, it gets better and better. And it really does. And that's, that's the gift that is what we deserve is that serenity. Um, I've had friends who there was a situation one time at a restaurant and we're both ambiguous, racially ambiguous. And this white man was in another part of the restaurant spouting off about minorities. I called the waitress and I said, he's directing this at us, I know. And um, we have a right to eat here at this beautiful restaurant and enjoy our meal. And my friend at the time was very angry and ready to go over there <laughs> and just tell him something. But I said, you have the right to your serenity. And remember this, you know, sometimes it's, some people say, oh, pick your battles, but it's not, it's more about at that time, our right to eat there, our serenity. The waitress came back around later with three different desserts and said, they're on me. So I said, you can, you can hold it down in the town, on the res, wherever you're at, um, and bring that beauty uh, into your life, into the community. I think, you know, as, again, as you were, as you were expressing those, those words, I love that idea of approaching, because oftentimes we think of resilience and we think of survivance. We don't think of love and serenity and, you know, we're thinking of just breathing, of living and trying mm -hmm. to get to that next point. And so I love how you frame that in this mindset of, you know, we, we, have, to, we have to approach these ways from, from a love perspective, from, from that teaching that you got when you're young and, and especially approaching these things again, as you talked about at the, at the end, as a need for our serenity, a need for, you know, um, with, with my people, it, it's, we find that in the, the balance the balance of everything in life, you know, understanding that, that there's a balance in all that we do. And I think, you know, uh, your writings express that in ways and not just your writings, just just your 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 um, oratory or your oral words, you know, I'm just sitting here listening to you and I'm like, yes, <laughs> like, if I wasn't, if I didn't put myself on mute, you'd be hearing me saying all different things as we're talking. Um, but it, it really does help us shift our perspective when we think like that, because again, I think so often uh, when we talk about, especially that resilience piece, it's we, you know, we, we have to be almost in, in a sense of anger, in a, mm -hmm. in a mindset of anger for us to be resilient, to give us that fuel. I don't think a lot of people, I, I, I really do appreciate that, that turn of anger isn't the only place or um, you know, we, we can find that resilience and that fuel for resilience and love and serenity. We can find those things. Um, and oftentimes, in, in my opinion, those will probably be stronger. Mm -hmm. Those will be stronger and those will be things that um, really propel us forward. So I appreciate that. Um, and kind of going on to our next question here with that. So American Indian Graduate Center you know, we, we empower um, a lot of scholars and, and not, not just our scholars, but, you know, we work with Native students across mm -hmm. the country that are facing these traumas as they navigate 
institutions that in reality weren't built for them as they as they navigate these institutions of higher learning. Um, do you have any advice for any of those students that are listening right now, whether they be traditional college students that are right out of house, uh, high school, um, you students who are returning students after um, life has called them back to education, do you have any advice or, or words that might help them um, persevere and succeed as they they navigate this journey? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I definitely can be very difficult because you may be the only uh, American Indian in the class or in your program. And I actually have a short uh, piece that is in um, Not Your Princess. It's a book that uh, Lisa Charlie Boy and another author put out. Um, and I've been there where I've been the only American Indian. And the reason I used American Indian is just because I felt it was appropriate. I know we have different terminologies, but it made me feel like, you know, there was those times of isolation um, disconnection, discombobulation. And I, I'll kind of share a little bit about my journey. I did um, attend Michigan State University for my first year of undergrad. And it, because I grew up in a neighborhood in a village in the inner ring suburb of Detroit, um, I had a strong sense of community and identity. And I guess I'll say one of the positive things of growing up in the suburbs in the metropolitan Detroit area was that that community did validate my native identity. And no one really ever, you know, there was no uh, negative, no stereotypes, just support, support, support. And follow your dreams, follow your dreams, follow your dreams. Well, that really helped me to get through difficult times in undergrad and grad school. Um, I was a competitive cross country and track athlete. So um, another part of my story is I almost died in high school. So the times I ran in college were the times I should have ran in high school. And I probably would have gotten a full ride. Here again is another thing on identities. I'm lactose intolerant and gluten intolerant. Well, culture, <laughs> heritage. Um, if I would have known back in the 90s, <laughs> I probably would have resolved that issue and been able to run the times to get the full ride. Okay, that's my story. Today, I'm still a runner and I know how to take care of what I need to. I'm glad there's a lot more wonderful foods out there that help with, you know, like brands like Daya and Amy's that have vegan and gluten-free foods because it was really boring back in the 90s. Like it was like rice and peanut butter and I've always been a health nut, but it's like, okay. So going on to Michigan State, um, you know, I was, I was like, I'm gonna run with the best of the best in the nation and had a great coach there. He was really awesome, but I decided it was too much for me to run an NCAA division one. They did have a Native American student organization there and I met Native students from around to the island. I felt really welcome in that group. Um, we had events, we did different things. And that was one of the positive things of Michigan State. It was just too big for me, uh, for someone coming from basically like a village inside the metropolitan area. And so I decided to go home and live at home and go to Wayne State. And Wayne State was isolating. Um, there was no Native student group. And even though it's considered one of the most diverse universities in the US, it wasn't inclusive for Native students. And I felt at times there was some harm done, you know. Um, and I think towards the end, I started getting more into my culture because I felt there was a disconnection there. 
perhaps staying at Michigan State would have been beneficial, you know, for that reason alone. But Wayne State helped me to go, you know, I need to really reconnect. And that's when my journey started, um, probably in my junior year. And um, I think the most important thing is to try to connect, you know, and sometimes even in our own communities, there can be that disconnection. Um, it's try to stay connected. Um, what I did is I started reading more books on my heritage. Um, you know, I wasn't able to go up to Kiwana Bay Indian community because I didn't have a lot of money. And that's, that's another thing too, is not having the money, not having the gas money. You're a student. And so try to connect as much as you can. Um, I feel like once you have that connection, you can't, it's not going to be broken. You know, once you reconnect to the things you need, but um, if there is no native student group, see if there's someone in your university, perhaps maybe you meet another student, a native student um, that you can connect with, but it can be difficult. It can be isolating. I mean, I've presented at universities with my consulting business in Kentucky and Ohio and a lot of native students, you know, it just, it's, it, it's isolating in places like that, or perhaps you're in, you know, the middle of West Virginia and it's like, it can be really uncomfortable. So um, I've endured that, I've survived that. And um, I have to say when I was in grad school, yes, it was a private liberal arts school. And um, I did have a great advisor who is, who is Danae and Santa Clara Tiwa. And she really helped me to kind of ground in my identity and not be like, I felt kind of sometimes with growing up that I was all over the place with my identity and disconnected and felt disoriented. Like, you know, I'm this and I'm also this, but I'm both. And how do I situate myself where I'm comfortable as an indigenous person? And she helped with that. She was really calm and grounding. Like how, I, how I've kind of come to that today but, you know, also honor the anger and maybe the sadness you might feel like, hey, I don't have anybody and I'm the only one. Like honor that and find a way to, to in a healthy way, um, deal with that anger. Whether it's maybe, maybe you wanna chop wood and carry the water, <laughs> you know, that can get some aggression out. Or perhaps you wanna go for a run, kickboxing, try to find something healthily. And that's the most important thing I can give because I've also engaged in not so healthy things when dealing with anger in the past. So, I think one of those things. Uh, yeah, I, I just I just reflect when we have these conversations. I, I reflect back on my own journey, and I think you talk about those connections, um, mm -hmm. understanding that those connections are really valuable. You talked about there at the end about you know also that the healthy choice piece, making those healthy choices, making those. Um, holistic choices that that really lend itself to the idea of well-briety and I know you've talked about what a uh, well-briety and how that plays a part in in what we do um could you talk about how you personally embrace culture and traditions um in your own well-briety journey and then also what advice that you might have for others who are trying to seek well-briety who are trying to um, you know, go down that path and, and find that balance with Wilbrighty. Yes. Um, <clears throat> well, it's a journey um, and it's a journey every day. I think 
there's no ending point. There is, as again, with my work, that one of the things during the pandemic that I was thinking is, you know, I can't wait to reconnect with everybody at our Powell's Culture events and our events that we hold at the Native Justice Coalition because I feel like it more energy and my spirit gets what it needs. Um, this is who I am. And it also is nice to have those conversations, which, you know, these are, this isn't small talk. It's about the work, it's about the community, hearing those stories, those recovery stories, hearing, you know, um, you know, anyone who is willing to share is, is, is a beautiful thing and is a part of the work we do at the Native Justice Coalition. Um, and I believe that the culture, the community is directly connected to my recovery journey and well-briety. And it is very important to me. You know, it's very important to a lot of my family and relatives. It's beautiful to see we had our second annual Anishinaabe Racial Justice Conference in May, 2019. We had to postpone our conference because of the pandemic, the third one. But at that one, it was beautiful because one of our collaborators, he said, look, this is a lot of your relations, a lot of your extended, extended family. And it was nice to see that we're coming together. And there is that, you know, there is that um, healing that spans within the individual, the family and the, the community, which is in, in a place like Kiwanabe Indian community is extended, extended, extended relations. So um, it's beautiful to see. And I think it's just sharing, you know, these conversations with an elder, um, sharing the conversations with like my mother and my father, my brother, my sister, it's all, a wonderful healing journey and it's all reconnecting to the culture. Um, I think having your identity forced on you or what you should be is not necessarily who you should be or who you should embrace. I danced jingle for several years until I knew as a two-spirit it was time for me to kind of retire that. It had done its job and at least for myself and many others I'm sure I decided to move on to um, dancing as a traditional men's woodland um, dancer because that's who I am as a two-spirit is. And I feel, you know, um, that's helped me too. The first time I danced, Kiwanabe Indian community is very uh, open-minded and, and, and again, loving and tolerant. So my friend, who's actually also our board president, <laughs> we went and talked to one of the, the arena directors and said, where am I supposed to go in as a two-spirit as in the men's traditional? <clears throat> and he said, just go in with the men. And that's not every community, not every community is ready. And when I went in, I could not stop crying because it's not just, I think it was the ancestors tears as well that I'm finally able to be who I am and not hide it, you know? And even though I grew up with <laughs> tying this back to my upbringing, um, even though I grew up in where I had a lot of open-mindedness and loving, you know, community and tolerance, it didn't, it's not this colonial LGBTQ plus is not the same as necessarily two-spirit in our communities. We may be, or want to use those colonial terminologies. However, like in the Anishinaabe language, we have 14 plus terminologies to describe who we are. And so my sister was there 
and my sister um, lives in Europe. She's a physicist. And um, she was there with me, which was a really big deal. And a lot of my fam family was there, extended, extended family. But it was nice to have like my uncles and just everyone except me. And um, interestingly, my friend that day also, she also danced as who she is as a two-spirit. And I was like, whoa, look at this. <laughs> so I'm tying that into well-variety because it's like, I feel like we need those releases and it's not, it wasn't like deep sorrow. It wasn't deep grief that needed to be released or deep generational trauma or current traumas. It was basically reclaiming is look, here I am. This is who I am. <laughs> so um, I will answer the other part of the question. Um, the advice for seeking mobility, you know, don't ever give up. And there's a lot more resources today than say my dad's generation, gender, he's a boomer, baby boomer, and, or my grandfather's. Um, and I'm Gen X by a hair. So I would say I've seen that transition where we, where we have more resources. Um, find what works for you. It may not be a colonial mental health psychologist or psychiatrist or counselor. It may be someone in the community you can talk to. It may be a friend, it may be a relative. It may be going to as many events in the community, whether powwows, cultural events, language camps as possible. Um, and it may be, you know, trying a new place, um, but definitely stay grounded. Um, I think there's one thing that I can share in my journey is I kind of ran from my pain, but I think it's important again, like I'm gonna be here, I'm gonna focus on this, and I have a right to be here because that's another thing. And I have a right to heal. You know, I have a right to go through this process. And I don't have shame. I don't have judgment. And don't put it on yourself. Um, that's one thing I think. Another thing that comes up with our communities is that shame. And um, just shame for being Native, you know, because we... I, that, that's also something, there's generational grief, generational trauma, generational shame. I had to hide who I am. No, don't have any shame. And even if there's things that you've done in your past that you go, hey, that's not who I am today. Don't have shame for that either because it's the result of what we've endured. So remove that shame and just continue going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, yes. You know, I, and I think you know, that, that's a powerful message because sometimes I don't, I don't, I think, and we don't recognize shame. We don't recognize that internalized shame that we might carry with us, that we, we might call it a different name and because we don't want to admit to ourselves that, that we're ashamed of certain aspects of our identity. And so I appreciate those words. I really do. Um, and that really, that, again, that you just, you're tying in perfectly with our net, or each of our next set of questions. Um, and, and that's going to tie into our last question. So uh, before I asked you, you know, we, we talked about any advice that you may have for, for Native students who are navigating, um, navigating these institutions of higher learning. Um, but do you have any advice for the communities? the advice for the communities or strategies for community members 
um, to help them support these scholars, you know, because with American Indian Graduate Center, we, we support scholars from not just the Southwest, we support scholars from across the United States, from across uh, Turtle Island, from across, you know, from Alaska all the way to Florida, to all four corners. We support, we support all varieties of Native students. And mm -hmm. that also comes with being in some way in support and um, in collusion, you might say, with these communities to make sure that we are getting our Native students through this, through these, this education system. Um, do you have any advice for those communities on how, you know, we, they can support these students and create uh, positive spaces for their mental health and for their well-being? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really think it, supporting education from, you know, the, the start of someone's life. And education can mean a variety of things, whether it is the formal university or perhaps there's something in terms of a different model of education that a community can look at supporting. But I think it is important to support, encourage and empower. Um, that's what I had. And I've actually, it's a great question because I've been doing a lot of reflecting on my hometown. Um, and I'm looking to travel there in July. I, I grew up in kind of a, I would say it was a mixed income community. And we did have one family, they were architects, uh, a white family, but the, the gal, the young uh, gal, she was like my buddy. And it was nice to have that like empowerment, like you can do this, you can do this instead of, I think what we get sometimes from uh, being on the res with white working classes, they don't want that. They want us to be down. And I've dealt with both things that can be one, you know, again, that's detrimental. And so it's important for the native community for, you know, the tribal government, for the tribal colleges to say, what can we do to counter what our students, our community members are gonna deal with? Because it's not gonna be easy. It's say you are gonna become a physicist or a lawyer, but maybe you do just want to be a mechanic or you want to, you know, um, be a teacher. There's a lot of different options and following your dreams, what you're good at, you know, and it might be related to your clan or clan relations. Cause I know some communities have multiple clans. We uh, go by our, we're patrilineal, not patriarchal, but we go patrilineal with our clan in the Anishinaabe uh, nation. So, you know, look at that too. Like, what are your gifts? Um, I remember I got funneled into kind of social work, social science, sociology, and I'm like, well, what if, what if I was destined to maybe get a law degree <laughs> or become a lawyer? Um, so I think sometimes those colonial models, they really narrow who you are. And they might be also discriminatory when it comes to gender. Oh, well, you're a female, you'd be a good teacher. Or you're male, you'd be a good uh, person to work on the auto industry line there and assemble cars. And it's like, wait a second. <laughs> so have the community expand. like actually hone in on what everyone's gifts are. Because I feel like sometimes with the things we're up against, you get caught up, you can get caught up, and then your dreams are not, they're sidetracked. Keep the dreams you know, right in front of you and have that support in the communities um, for well-being. Having cultural supports, 
having community supports is critical because I think about, like I mentioned, the youth in remote communities um, in Ontario and leaving at home, leaving the bush, you know, and having that strong connection to hunting, fishing, gathering, community culture, um, and going to maybe school and college out could be really difficult. It is a culture shock. And you may feel like a part of you is missing. So make sure, I think one of the things we can do is make sure that nobody is feeling dis, you know, disoriented, displaced, um, any race. You don't, we want to have those supports. It, it is a very painful thing to feel all those. And I endured those at some points in um, undergraduate school, for sure. I think maybe having a stronger sense would have helped out a lot, a stronger sense to community, to culture. Um, so that is what I can offer. And that is so much to offer. And I, again, I just wanna thank you, Cecilia. I wanna thank you for taking time um, and sharing space with us. You know, I, I know, I know we're sharing this space virtually. Um, yeah. And I know our listeners are listening and, and I know they're just, they're, they're getting so much from these conversations. And yeah, I just want to thank you for your intentionality and your words um, and your advice. You know, I think that's something uh, I was kind of writing down here as you were talking that support, encourage and empower. And I think that is something that it's, it's a model, whether or not we understand it, it's a model that we use. And it's just it, four simple words, but they can they can create so much change and create and, and, mm -hmm. and still, um, again, that sense of voice we talked about and still that sense of resiliency and still that sense of survivance for us. And so I really do appreciate that. I just want to thank you. Um, thank you again for joining us and thank you again for sharing um, these words and to all of our listeners out there today. Um, I want to thank you for joining us as we kick off episode one of season two. Um, we want to make sure that you all join us again next week here at the Inspired Podcast. Um, we have a great series of speakers um, lined up for this season. So we just look forward to sharing space with you all again next week. And until then, this is your host, Dr. Corey Still. What up?